Good morning. We'll be studying Acts. This is continuing Paul's second missionary journey. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, that we can come together and open up your word. May we understand and grow in grace and knowledge of our salvation. Help us to be faithful and obedient to what we learn. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this morning we're back in Acts. I know I've had this slide for a long time, but it kind of sets the stage for what's going to happen. So put it up one more time. Acts 16, 9, and 10. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, we've talked about this a little bit, but if you look here where it says, help us, that same word is used, Hebrews 2.18, for since he himself was tempted and that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Come to the aid is help. Help here is in the imperative. So somebody's crying out for help in this vision, it's called. Vision in the night. That reminds me a little bit of the Old Testament it talks about night visions. But there's a couple of things I want to mention about this. They talked it over. This was rational. This wasn't just some irrational, crazy idea that came out of nowhere and let's just go run off and do it. They talked it over rationally. And it says they concluded... What did they conclude? That God called us to preach the gospel to them. In other words, the Macedonia. The man of Macedonia doesn't turn out to be a specific individual. They didn't conclude that they had to find some one man when they got there. This was just a general idea. That's where we're going to go. Turns out that who they ended up finding was not a man, it was Lydia. Okay? So, what this supernatural intervention did was gave them impetus to actually go and preach the gospel to Macedonia. Let me make another comment on this. Preaching the gospel in Macedonia is never a sin. Okay? It's, it's God's revealed will because it fits with the Great Commission of Acts 1 and verse 8. And it it was part of going to the ends of the earth. So it fits in with a bigger scheme of things. I don't think this gives any comfort to people that become unstable and go here and there and here and there based on dreams or visions that they say they had. Today we're going to have a lot of data about places, how the Roman Empire worked, how travel worked. Yes, uh, we, there's a mic here. You want to grab the mic? Yeah. When you're done with it, give it to the lady that usually has it. Okay, uh, 
this is a, uh, this is a question that is so dumb, really dumb, but I want to ask it because I, I just want to emphasize it. I've run into people who have said, you know, unless God tells me who to share the gospel with, I'm not going to. You know, in other words, I want, uh, this is kind of a piggyback on what you were saying. You know, it's never a sin to proclaim the gospel. We don't just wait to be told specifically, right? Right. Uh, They were about determined they were going down on this journey to preach the gospel. But they had been hindered to go elsewhere. Turns out that where the elsewhere was, they will get back to later. Now, yeah, the command is to go into all the world, preach the gospel. All right, you don't need a special revelation to do that. And I think it was within their liberty to take this seriously and go do it in Macedonia. And it turned out that God did use that and establish a church there, and it became a key area for the gospel. And it was a key area in the Roman Empire, as we will see. So I'm going to give you a bunch of details. I have slides. Let me give you a preview. See, we're going to have some slides about these places that Paul went in some detail. So um, Acts 16, 11, and 12. So putting out to sea from Troas, we, notice the we, this means Luke was with them. We ran a straight course of Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. So there's a lot packed into this, these two verses. It turns out that Philippi will become a key place for gospel outreach. And God will be using a lady by the name of Lydia to facilitate that. Philippi had great pride in their honored status by Rome. Citizenship was important to them. There were many military veterans who lived in Philippi, and I'll I'll give you some details from scholars about how Rome ruled its empire and why these were key places. So that's what's happening there. If you look at the uh, epistle of Philippians, Paul talks about our citizenship in heaven. Citizenship was something that was at the forefront of their minds because they were so proud to be Roman citizens in a colony that had a lot of military veterans. So that's what Philippi was about. Now, bear with me as I share some scholarly data. Why do that? Well, because I want people to know that the details in the Bible are historically accurate. We have no reason to try to suggest that the Bible's mythology or simply stories, but it's accurate down to details about how they traveled, roads that they took, cities they went to, and so on. This is cold, sober history, not mythology. 
Let me read from Dr. Schnabel. I got, recently got his commentary. It's turned out to be one of the best ones I have on Acts. Dr. Schnabel, quote, the defeat of King Perseus in the Third Macedonian War in 160, 168 BC allowed the Senate in Rome to take over Macedonia, which was divided into four district, districts, Merides, with the capital, those are, that's what districts are, with the capital cities of Amphipolis, Amphipolis, Thessalonica, Pella, and Heratica, Heratia. And after a rebellion in 148 BC, Macedonia became a Roman province. Roman colonies with army veterans, that's important, were established in Dyrrhachium, Dion, Pella, Philippi, Cassandria, and administered by an imperial legate whose seat was in Thessalonica. Now, a lot of these places come up in the Bible. But what is significant to us as far as the accuracy of the Bible is that Rome ruled districts in two different ways. They had imperial provinces and senatorial. Okay? Some of those were administered by the Senate in Rome, some directly by the emperor. Luke, and there's different names for who's in charge of these different districts. Luke gives details about people, their title, where they were, when they were, and he's accurate down to the detail. Continuing on Dr. Schnabel's discussion of the history, after 27 BC, Macedonia was a senatorial province. And from AD 15 to 44, Macedonia was combined with Achaia, that's mentioned in the Bible, Achaia, and administered by an imperial legate who was in Thessalonica. In AD 44, five years before Paul and his co-workers arrived, Claudius organized Macedonia and Achaia as separate senatorial provinces. The capital of the province of Macedonia was Thessalonica. And so we have here an end quote from Dr. Stable. And so this was where the gospel went. A highly organized Roman colony, well-administered, with military veterans, and relatively safe travel. Unlike some places in America today, they had the rule of law. Okay? And that was very important because that made it possible for the apostles to get where they needed to go freely without so much danger. So there was free travel. Continuing with our historical analysis, Paul and his co-workers traveled from the harbor of Neapolis on the Roman road called Via 
Ignatia, Via Ignatia, I'm going to show you pictures of that, to Philippi, where they stay for several days. A rather vague indication of time. And so he talks about the leading city. It doesn't mean it's the capital, but it's an important place. So again, they're still accurate. Continuing with Dr. Schnabel, because this is all going to show the accuracy of, of Luke. Why is that important? Well, for me, right now I'm reading a book, I'm halfway through, by a guy in England who's a big hot pastor out there who basically takes the Bible, and he knows the details of the Bible, but he takes it as some sort of a sanctified myth. And he loves all the stories in the Bible, and he's pretty good at telling the stories of the Bible, but he doesn't concern himself with the author's intent. Because in his way of looking at it, meaning is a combination process, a combination of the author, the text, and the reader. So that's just mushy categories. I'll be writing an article about this. But what I'm trying to say is that the writers of the Bible didn't consider any of this myth. They weren't just trying to tell inspiring stories. They weren't just trying to make us feel better about ourselves. They were telling us cold, sober truth. And even the very tiny details are historically accurate. Luke was a well-educated person. We don't know if he was Jewish or Gentile. That's now mentioned in the Bible. But he was a physician, very eloquent in Greek and he was an eyewitness to this and able to tell exact details of things that happened and he said in the preamble to Luke that that's what he was going to do and so don't listen to these emergent mystical magical mystical people that are just looking for an inspiring story this is historically accurate down to the detail. Schnabel, Philippi's wealth, based on the provision of wood for shipbuilding, on gold and silver mines, was proverbial. The name of the city was changed from Titan to Philippi when the Macedonian king Philip II conquered the city in 350 BC and settled new colonists. And then it goes on, talks about the Romans, Mark Antony, Cassius, Julius Caesar. All this stuff is a background for the Bible telling us about the gospel penetrating into the Roman Empire. It's important because when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said that they would be witnesses to the ends of the earth by going into the Roman Empire and ultimately into Rome, that was how the gospel went to the ends of the earth. Because it went out from there because it was the greatest empire in the world at that time. And so the vision that led them to go to Philippi was part of the bigger plan of God to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so in God's providence, the timing of Christ's coming, dying, 
being raised from the dead, ascending into heaven, commissioning his apostles, saving Paul, calling him, sending him, is all part of God's plan that the gospel would spread rapidly all over the known world, which is exactly what happens. I'm going to show you some details about this. I've got to get over it so I can read it. Okay, so it says they set off from Troas, which is right there. And they go here, I believe it's Samuel Thrace. And then from Samuel Thrace, and I got pictures of that, they end up in Philippi, which is over here. Does that make sense? That's exactly what happened. Now, that's just a map. Now, let me show you pictures of these places currently. Here it says, uh, I have notes with this, these granite columns, now half submerged, were once part of the stoa around Troas's outer harbor. So here is where the harbor would have been in the ancient time when Paul took off from there in Troas. Um, yeah, I think it would be in modern-day Turkey. I, I don't have a map that's bigger on this PowerPoint. It goes, yeah, there's Asia Minor where they were. And they're heading over to the Corinthian Peninsula eventually. All right, so do you see that? So these are real places. That's my point. Now you might say, well, why make a point out of that, like I just said? Because it's being denied. This is personal to me, because when I was a young adolescent and then teenager, ordained ministers were telling me the Bible didn't really happen. It was religious stories to inspire us. And that was their liberal idea. This is just somebody's religious stories. These happen to be ours, and they're inspiring. And I said, what's the point of it if it didn't happen? To make us be a better person. And I didn't want to be disrespectful to ordained ministers, so I didn't say anything. But I know what I thought. I thought, why would things that you read that claim to be true that are actually myth inspire me to be good? I don't feel inspired. I think I'll go to the golf course, which is exactly what I did. Sunday morning in Iowa is a good place for the golf course because everybody's in church. And you have it all to yourself. Okay, so I wasn't inspired. This is a picture of Samuel Thrace. Samuel Thrace is an island in the Aegean Sea, 65 miles southeast of ancient Neapolis. Uh, modern Kavala, if anybody knows where that is. On Paul's journey, Samuel Thrace was merely a place to pause for the night because ships did not have good sleeping accommodations. Sailors would typically go ashore to find a place to sleep when possible. So you stop, go ashore, you sleep. Here's more of Samuel Thrace. 
ancient literary sources refer to the great gods by the collective name Kabiri, Kabiri, or Kabera, this mystery cult spread rapidly throughout the Greek world during the Hellenistic period, eventually reaching as far as Rome. So here we have buildings. The, the picture here is of buildings in the sanctuary of the great gods of Samothrace. So the point here is that wherever Paul and Luke and the rest of the party went, they were running directly into polytheism. These weren't atheists. They believed in various deities of one sort or another, the great gods. And then, setting sail from Troas, Luke said, we ran straight, straight course to Samothrace the next day to Neapolis. Here's a picture of that. Of course, it wasn't all built up back then. Neapolis, modern Kavala, was situated in the Roman providence of Macedonia, modern nor northern Greece. That's right, it wouldn't be Corinthian, it would be the Greece Peninsula. Uh, on the north coast of the Aegean Sea, Neapolis functioned as the port city for Philippi, which was located about 10 miles inland. Ancient Neapolis was built on a promontory with bays on each side of the city. So there they landed, Neapolis. Again, historically accurate details. Now here we have another picture of the harbor and the different places around there. And so the distance from Samothrace to Neapolis is 60 miles. Now, if you don't, let's just talk about that a little bit, because at the end of Acts, we're going to have a shipwreck that's very significant. Sailing was really a fast, like us getting on an airplane, only a lot less safe. Okay? If you were going to go from Asia Minor to Philippi by road, you'd have a long, treacherous journey. Okay, and, they'd have, and it wouldn't be easy, but it could be done. And it would take a really long time. But by sailing, the 60 miles was traversed way, way more quickly. And in the right kind of weather, it wasn't too bad as far as safety, although it could become a real issue at certain times of the year. So, they, so Paul was using the latest technology as far as how they could handle travel, and this Pax Romana, which is Roman peace, which created the opportunity for travel, a unified language, and ways of spreading information quickly around the world. So God was using the situation providentially to spread the gospel. This is the Via Ignatia. Parts of it still exist via Ignatia. In Roman times, Neapolis was the main Aegean port along the Via Ignatia, an important trade route across Macedonia. Remains of the old Roman roads still exist. Our roads can't even last 20 years. What's the deal here? They redo Highway 100 and they're back out there tearing it apart. 2,000 years. 
It's a pretty good road. Remains of the old Roman road still exists, as shown here. Paul would have walked this road from Neapolis to Philippi. The road is not mentioned by name in Acts, but since it was the main road connecting cities that he visited, there could be little doubt that he used it. And that would make sense. He wouldn't take a more difficult, dangerous route if he had an easy one. So Paul walked down that road. Isn't that amazing? The Bible's not mythology after all. From there to Philippi. Here is the Via Ignatia with a view to Neapolis. This is a close-up of a section of the road shown on the previous slide. Construction on the Via Ignatia began in 146 BC. By the 4th century AD, it was still in use. 546 years, they're still using the same road. Expanded to nearly 700 miles by that time. All right, so Philippi. So this is a view from Philippi south toward Neapolis. So from Neapolis back up there, you take that road into Philippi. This is uh, one of the ways they learn details about what happened in the ancient wor world is by examining coins uncovered during excavations. Okay, the coins give data. This coin, let me just read about it. There's the coin. This coin was minted in Philippi around the time of Acts 16. So this would have been contemporary with Paul being in Philippi, this coin. The verse depicts Victoria, Roman version of Nike. By the way, that's, did you know Nike was a god that they worshipped? The god of victory. The god of victory. So now you know where Nike came from. The god of victory, Roman version of Nike. And this inscribed V-I-C-A-V-G, which stands for Victoria Augusti. The reverse displays three Roman war standards and is inscribed P-H-I-L, Philippi, and P-R-A-E, Praetorian Guard, mentioned in the Bible. And C-O-H, Cohort. All of that's in the Bible. Why were those pastors telling me this is all myth? They might as well said might as well have been saying Abraham Lincoln was a myth. They will be soon enough, the way things are going. They're running to tear down all these statues because the people in our society hate history and they hate reminders of our founding, and so they're trying to destroy everything. But here shows you the importance of knowing history. We understand what happened, when it happened, why it happened, and we learn from it. And so those people wanting to destroy history are motivated, I believe, by philosophy of Hegel. They think if you burn everything down, something good will emerge from the ashes. 
know, we know that doesn't happen, but they, they really believe that. It's sort of a romantic view of the world. Burn it down like you burn down a forest and in the spring, new stuff grows up. That's what they think is going to happen if you burn down a civilization. That's what we're facing in America. But look at the details of this. This coin commemorates the victory of Augustus at Philippi for, from the reign of Claudius, which would have been contemporary with Paul. Wow. Now, this you can't see a lot of details of, but let me just quick show you what it is. Roman colonies were often populated with military veterans. This artifact provides an example of foreign veterans being granted Roman citizenship for their service, and quite possibly a new home as well. The display was photographed, well, it, it was in New York City, but it's foreign veterans granted Roman citizenship. And so that was a proud thing that they had in Philippi and so on. All right, now let's get back to what happens with the gospel. Acts 16, 13 and 14. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer. And when we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So there's a lot going on here and a lot to learn. As I say in my the caption I wrote, Lydia will become a key person used by God for the gospel to take root in Philippi. And notice that there's no synagogue. Normally when they were in Asia Minor, they would go first to the synagogue and speak the gospel to the Jews who assembled there. But there was no actual synagogue in Philippi. It's a Roman colony. But for some reason, Paul believed there'd be some Jewish people over by the river outside. So that's where he went. And they had a place of prayer there. And it was women who had assembled. So this wasn't a synagogue with a rabbi and the normal things you'd be looking for. But it was some people, and it was a starting place. Lydia is like a, a bracket, okay, an inclusio for Acts 16, 13 through the end. Because in Acts 16, 40, she's mentioned again. In between, we have a lot of intrigue. We have demons. We have angels, or we have an earthquake, we have a prison, we have the Philippian jailer, all kind of stuff happens. Then we're back to Lydia. So she's still a key person by the construction here. Acts 16.40 says, they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia where they saw the brethren, encouraged them to depart. Well, that's where they got out of jail. All right, so Lydia is important. 
Dr. Tannehill says this, the Philippian narrative in 1611 through 40 is an integrated episode, says Tannehill, in which the interaction of characters produces a sequential chain of events. Only the references to Lydia stand somewhat apart. The references to Lydia and her household form a frame around the rest of the episode. It shows an interest in the key role of a patroness of the community and hostess for the missionaries in the founding of a church, unquote. So this place of prayer, Lydia is there. She becomes a very key person. And it was like a Jewish prayer place. And uh, it's not really a synagogue, but it was a place for them to meet. Notice that Lydia is called a merchant of purple. I'm going to show you. Please bear with me. But I feel it's necessary to stand up for the historical accuracy of the Bible down to very detailed things. The purple is historically accurate. The fabric is historically accurate. The place where it came from is historically accurate. And I'm going to show you pictures. I don't want one young person, whoever hears me, to have the same experience I did when I grew up in a liberal church. I don't want somebody telling you this is all stories, none of it ever happened. Yes, uh, for Paul over here. Um, I would like to have you focus in on the word respond there. Uh, Lydia was a gifted person. She was gifted uh, financially. She was gifted uh, with a heart. Uh, and the thing spoken by Paul, I assume, is the gospel. So would respond. Um, I, I, I'm bringing up two questions. It says here. the Lord opened her heart. So the Lord drew her. The Lord drew her. Boy, he hears. Yeah, we could talk about that. Let's take a break from historical details and talk about that. Good, thank you. This really gives us a good idea of the gospel and of salvation. Please pay attention. God was at work to get the gospel to Philippi. Going back to the Macedonian vision. There was travel by ship, stopping different places, following a road, getting to where they were, finding some Jewish people, ladies, and showing you, by the way, that these lies that the feminists are trying to say are just that, lies. They're trying to tell us that the Bible is abusive to women. And that we've got to neuter the Bible or get rid of it, because otherwise... We can't stand it. But that's just not true. And it's particularly not true in Luke-Acts, in Luke's genealogy, in the stories in Luke about key places that, that God met people and used them, and key persons who respond. Lydia becomes one of the more important people in Acts. 
And the writers of the scriptures were thinking, well, let's make up a story and make sure the women are kept in their place. Because the feminists are saying the men were bad, badly motivated, still are, they say. They're always trying to revise everything and make sure women are abused and pushed down and kept in their place. That's just the way it is. So we've got to get rid of Christianity as we knew it, because it's evil. But it's revisionist history. And the Bible will explain what happens based on what actually happens. And the Bible's not going to tell us something didn't happen because a woman becomes prominent. And it's not going to tell us something good happened through a man just because he's a man, because if a man does evil, the Bible tells us. It doesn't care if you're a man or a woman in regard to who will come to faith and believe. Because the gospel is for all persons, whoever they are. Whoever believes will be saved. It doesn't matter what your status is. It doesn't matter your wealth. It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your gender. Those who believe are saved. Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's the power of God of salvation for whoever believes. And he lists different kind of people. So here we have women at a place of prayer and God sovereignly moving to bring salvation. So Luke wasn't certainly trying to be this uh, abusive male that wants to create a myth where the men are the great gods. It's just not true. Don't listen to the lies. Study the Bible in detail that it is and see what God is saying. And you will come to a totally different view than the liberals are telling you about. The liberals are lying to you. They're the ones with the bad motives. They want to demythologize the Bible and so on. So, not only was Lydia Jewish, she was with other women at a place of prayer, and she was a successful businesswoman, and she becomes a key person to the gospel. The Lord opened her heart. That was our question. This will tell us how this works. People want to know how is the doctrine of election compatible with human responsibility and human freedom? So the questions I get continually. God uses means. The means that God has chosen to use to bring salvation is the gospel preached. The preaching of the gospel. That's why Paul says he's not ashamed of it. And when the gospel was preached, notice a worshiper of God, she was a God-fearer. She could have been a, a Greek God-fearer for that matter, but she was gathered with Jews. But she was a worshiper of God. She was listening. So here we see in one verse, verse 14, the external call and the internal call. 
And that shows us that these are valid theological categories. External call, hearing the words and understanding them. Everybody hears that. They either get mad or they get glad. But they hear it. And then when we talk in theology about the internal call, that is the call wherein someone knows that the gospel's true and that I must repent. Oh my, this is about me. And that's when it says, the internal call, the Lord opened her heart. God did that. That's the internal call. It opened her heart to what? To respond to the things. Let me say something else. Therefore, we should never be bashful about re preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's mentioned in Acts as well. Because some people say if you preach repentance, you're preaching works. But they don't give God the glory for opening anybody's heart. The fact that someone becomes responsive to the gospel is not because they find it intellectually appealing. And it's not simply because they come to give mental assent to certain facts. You can preach the whole counsel of God, the full gospel, faith, repentance, obedience. It's not going to scare away somebody that God's opening their heart. When God opens your heart and you know it's God, like Lazarus, Lazarus come forth, that's an analogy, uh, and the light goes on, you're not going to say, well, I would have become a Christian, but I don't like this repentance thing. Bye. That's not the Lord opening your heart. That's the internal call. Because it said he opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So that's why you preach accurately what Jesus Christ called us to preach. And in Luke Acts, they're called to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But it's interesting, I'm still getting emails. There are still people out there wanting to fight about this. And there are still people out there saying, God is not able to open everybody's heart until they give him permission. And they literally will debate you and say, well, if God is capable of opening hearts. Why doesn't he open everybody's heart? I debate a guy was saying that. And they, and they write me emails. And I, and I, 
It just flabbergasts me because I think Paul already anticipated that question and answered it. Why do you refuse to listen to Paul? Well, where is that? What well, Romans? He said, you will say then, why does he find fault? And he says, who are you, old man, to reply to God? Can't God run his universe? Can't he make the, out a piece of clay what he wants to make? And they're saying that fairness must rule. And if God is not fair in the way I claim God has to be fair, then I won't serve God. I had people tell me that, including preachers. God has to do it my way or I won't serve him. And God opened her heart. Why did he open everybody's heart? Well, remember Deuteronomy 29, 29? The things revealed are for us and our children, our children's children. But the things that are not revealed, the secret things belong to God. I don't know why God doesn't open everybody's heart. Other than I do know that he does all things for his glory. And I see the praising of God in Revelation even after judgments happened. And some people are sent away to the pit. And the host of heaven is praising God, saying how great his works are. So I don't think it's going out of bounds to say that the way God does it will bring him the greatest glory in eternity. And if that's hard for us to understand, we don't have to understand it. We have to accept it. It's not absurd. If, if a president, for example, chooses to pardon somebody who's in jail, we've always accepted that as a reasonable thing. Sometimes they do it in unreasonable manners. I, I won't go into any details about who's done some crazy things like that, but we accept that that's, well, does, if the president pardons somebody, does he have to pardon everybody who was ever in jail? Or he's not fair. No, we accept that. But we won't accept how God runs his universe. Go ahead and send me the nasty emails. That's okay. But you're not going to change who God is, what he said, and what he did. What does it say? The Lord opened her heart to respond. It's very similar to elsewhere in Acts where it said that God granted repentance. And so she did. And God still does that. In my many year, decades now of, ser of service in the ministry, again and again, I've seen God open the heart of key people and that you would never have expected. I can tell a story now because the man is with Jesus and he wouldn't be embarrassed that I was talking about him. In 1983, when the New Age was, there were books coming out about the New Age. That was a big thing to discuss back then. I decided in Sunday school, I'd do a lecture on the New Age and how it's so cold and what's wrong with it. So I announced that, set the date for Sunday school, and we had our Sunday school and I gave the lecture on the New Age. Well, the guy we used to know at some charismatic meetings in the 70s, brought along a friend to sit down to hear that lecture. Brought him right down and set him in the front. I gave the lecture on the New Age. The guy 
plight, got up, went home after church. A week later, he came back. A week later, he came back before Sunday school. He said, Bob, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. He said, uh, I heard that lecture you did last week, and what you were talking about is what I've been in. He said, I'm a Unitarian Universalist, and essentially what you were mentioning. And I thought, oh boy, here it goes. <laughs> and the guy says, I went home and thought about it all week, and I decided you're right. And he came back and says, I want to be a Christian. That was in 1983, probably about September, October. The man's name was Bert Sisler. And he was born the same year my dad was, which was in 1923. He had just been forced to retire as a pilot from Northwest Orient Airlines because he turned 60. And he was a World War II military veteran who had flown planes in World War II. And I'm telling you, in that inauspicious event, this guy said, I decide you're right. I mean, there was no whistles and bells and jumping up and down. He just decided the gospel was true. That was in September of 1983. Bert's sister became one of my best friends and helpers and key people in the support of the ministry for decades of my life. When we were down there in a difficult situation in the inner city, Bert would come down every week. He'd help work on the building. He'd mow the lawn. He'd find out what needed to be done. He'd solve problems. We went out and got gathered wood together to burn. He took me into his garage and showed me how he invented airplane designs. He became, he golfed with me. He was just somebody who made my life a whole lot better, a key person like Lydia. And I wasn't, when I was, I mean, nobody told me that when I taught on a new age, a new age guy's gonna be sitting right there. I'm glad I didn't know. I just taught. And he, God opened his heart. And nothing would have got Bert away from the gospel until we went to his funeral this last year. And um, that's what God does. So I want to encourage everyone, whoever you are, whoever's listening to this, be faithful to the truth. Do your research. Understand the issues. Know what the text says, okay? And if it says it, don't start thinking, well, that can't be right, because God can't lie. Just, who's going to want to hear the Lord open their heart? Why didn't he open everybody's heart? Luke just told us what God did. Then he tells us the result. Lydia becomes the key person for there to be a church in Philippi. And ultimately, when Paul was in prison, he wrote Philippians so that people down to this very day can read Philippians and grow and learn and understand the way of the Lord more perfectly because a Lydia, a seller of purple, who believed in God, so she was at least a Greek God-fearer, and 
she was saved. And there becomes a church in Philippi. That's why we tell the truth. That's why we explain the gospel. And we know God will use it to save who he's going to save. And I want to just say now that Bert is with Jesus, I thank God for the memory of my dear friend Bert Sisler. I don't know if I could, how I would have survived those awful years when we were under attack by the neighborhood down there during the really bad times in the 80s and 90s. Bert was always there for me and with me. Born the same year as my dad, but he lived 20-some years longer than my dad did. So Lydia is a key person, and we teach the truth. God opens the hearts. Let's just say that. He uses means. The means is the means of the gospel preached. We preach the truth. God opens the heart. Those of you evangelists that go out, you don't know when God's going to open somebody's heart, and that's why you go. You don't know how or where. Let me just quote something from Schnabel on this. We have a few minutes. Lydia is a merchant dealing in purple cloth. A Latin inscription from Philippi, says Schnabel, refers to dealers in purple. An inscription from Thessalonica documents a guild of purple dyers dying. An inscription from Philippi mentions purple dyers from Thyatira. Get that. Lydia's from Thyatira, and she's a merchant of purple. There's an inscription that says that there were such people. Details are true. The purple dye was extracted from purple fish, gives the name of them, and the Latin name. The purple industry had a long history in the cities of, Phoenicia, of the Phoenician coast, particularly Tyre, played an important role in Lydia and Phrygia and Asia Minor as well. And uh, there are a couple different ways they made the purple. The expensive stuff came from shellfish, the cheaper stuff came from roots. Let me quick show you. This is Thyatira, some colony ruins. Here's some shellfish. Remember, this is where Lydia is from. Thyatira was known for the dyeing of purple cloth, a fact which Homer mentions in his Iliad. There are two theories about how dye was made. One theory holds the dye came from sea slugs, shells found in the Mediterranean. The other postulates the dye was extracted from the roots of plants. While it was known that purple dye was manufactured from murex shells in ancient time, the type of dye used in Thyatira was probably from plants. Well, there's the shells, there's the plants. Details, 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 accurate, down to the minutia. The Holy Spirit is an inspired, cleverly devised fables and myths. But cold 
sober truth. Well, now we got some more fun for next week. Baptism of a household. What is? What are we going to do about that? <laughs> Better get your Lutheran book out. <laughs> see if I see what's going to happen here. Okay, I got to leave you hanging a little bit. Let's close the prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. And thank you for opening the hearts of people like Lydia and people like Bert Sisler. And Lord, we know you still do the same. Help us to be faithful in proclamation. And we pray that you'd open more hearts so that people would respond to the things spoken. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.